Morning, Saltbox. So Perry and I found a uh, George Jetson-style music stand uh, in one of the closets around here, and we decided we'd try it today. So if I fall over or it falls over, you can just laugh at me, and then we'll get up and keep going. Sound good? Um, I loved having our kids in here. So you, you probably noticed, um, but we're checking our kids in pre-service just for safety and security. That becomes more important as we grow. But the value of a church that worships together is extraordinary. So we've created this little path here, and we're going to celebrate as we hear little voices and footsteps that pitter-patter through the back, whispering and laughing, and come in and join us and then go back out. And um, for us, celebrating Jesus and worshiping together as a family is vital, and uh, that's why we're doing that. So bear with us. These front three or four rows will usually be sort of set aside um, as we move forward. But as always, we're working the kinks out, right? Uh, we are starting a new series, uh, which I am just so thrilled about. But you know what? Before I say that, um, a big thanks to Josh and Susie Sherman for leading us today. Um, they actually led uh, first in, in our living room when there was like 10 or 12 of us. Um, and then they led again when there was probably, I don't know, 15 or 18 of us at the Y. And, and so to have them back here at Hoggard is just really neat. So really grateful to you both, and uh, thanks for being here and uh, leading us uh, while you're on vacation. Um, so we're starting a new series, uh, and it is called Pioneer. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, but I'm really excited. And hopefully, uh, as we journey through this, we're going to be able to get our arms around all that was happening in the New Testament church. And when we think of the New Testament church, we think of the book of Acts, we think of the epistles, and Paul is really central to all of that. And we're going to be talking about Paul and then all of these um, companions and friends that journeyed along with him. And really the heart behind it is that you would begin to find yourself and how you fit into this larger tapestry and story of what God is doing in this place, in this time, and in this space here in Wilmington. So I have asked Grant if he would come up and read. We're actually going to be in Galatians uh, chapter 1 today. And then we will jump in. Grant read so well last week, I got a bunch of compliments, and I was like, well, come on, let's have Grant read again. I mean, you know. <laughs> Galatians chapter 1, if you're in a Bible or on your phone. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not for men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserted, deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that, what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. 
I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by the revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who sent me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. Amen. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, open our hearts, would you interact with us, would you change us, and would you conform us? And Lord, would you let us be companions and participants with you in that very same gospel being advanced here in Wilmington today? In your name we pray. Amen. So in uh, 2013, um, a, a band called uh, The Band Perry released a song called Pioneer. And one of the, uh, if you're younger, you might know that. If you're older, you may not. So you'll just have to take my word for it. But one of the uh, words or the lyrics in it, the very, the very end of the first sort of stanza says, but the future of us all rests on the shoulders of your heart. The future of us all rests on the shoulders of your heart. And really what we're looking at today is we're looking at the Apostle Paul, uh, who was not always the Apostle Paul. He was formerly Saul, who persecuted the church. And God called him, and at some level, the future of the church rested on the shoulders of his heart. That's what we're looking at today. And then more than the Apostle Paul, we tend to go, oh, surely it was just Paul. But what we're going to be unfolding is there was a team of dynamic people, a team of people who came together and pioneered the New Testament church. They really architected uh, that New Testament church. So why pioneer? Good question. Um, we tend to, at least here in America, we would tend to think of the 1851 newspaper quip, go west, young man, go west. Some of you all may remember that. Actually, you may remember reading about it. <clears throat> uh, so two reasons for pioneers. Number one, pioneers travel without a map, but with a compass. So the very nature of a pioneer is that they're going somewhere where no one's gone before. They're actually going to a new place. There are no maps. They can't pull a map out and unfold it and go, okay, where are we going? They're traveling literally by direction. And so what we have as we look at the Apostle Paul is he is literally coming off, and we're even going to look at ten silent years of, of Paul's life where he is literally studying and attempting to look at uh, the Old Testament at foretelling of the coming of Christ Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and then the Savior of the world as he ministers the gospel and establishes churches all over the known world. So fascinating. He is like uh, literally traveling and leading a group of people by compass, no map. The second reason for Pioneer, and I love this, is that they traveled as a team. Remember, a team of what went west? A team of wagons. And remember what would happen when they would get in trouble? 
Look at that. You all know that. What would happen when they got into trouble? They would circle the wagons. That's what I love about this, because we tend to think of Paul as this like individual, dynamic guy who led it all. And I want to tell you, and what we're going to be unfolding before you, is there's a whole team of people. And when they got into trouble, they circled the wagons. They came together. They talked. They prayed. They sought the Lord. It was never a one-man or one-woman show. It was always a team. It was always us. It was never me or I. It was always in-togetherness is our strength. So they traveled as a team, Paul and this courageous gang of pioneer trailblazers. So as we look at Paul, and I realize that that chapter we just read has a ton in it. We're going to try to get our hands around some of that. But as we look at Paul, um, I do want to point out a couple things about his appearance You guys might not know what Paul looks like, but I think it's at least worth mentioning. We have four or five sources, historical sources, that mention his appearance. So, he was four feet six inches tall. How about that? How about the commanding Paul, the guy who wrote 12 of the New Testament books and had such an influence on the life of Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and who wrote Acts. I mean, Paul... The amazing Paul, four feet, six inches tall. Interestingly, he made tents. You probably know that. And because he made tents, he sat at a workbench like this. And over the years, he hunched over. And so not only was he four feet six, he walked with a hunch. Very impressive man. And not only did he walk with a hunch, but he really didn't get released into his ministry until late 30s, almost 40, when he really began this, his public ministry. And he had some arthritis in his legs, and so he walked with a bow. So we have a hunch and a bow. And yet this man traveled up and down the known World, And that's the question that I've been even wrestling with is, what was the gas in his tank that drove this man? What was it that kept urging him onward? He'd go with nothing and come to a new town and pull out his tools with his hunch and his bow legs and make another tent to support himself so that he didn't even take a dime from the churches. What a man. What was it that prompted this guy? What was it that fueled this guy? Now, one of my favorite things about Paul. Here it is. We're going to all pause for a moment. We're going to see law on this one. He was bald with a shiny head. (laughs) Let's just pause. I'm I'm just kidding. Uh, One one, uh, passage or one historical thing even says he had a unibrow and he had a hooked nose. So if you're out there today and you're feeling insecure about your physical appearance, you're in good company. And in a day when we really elevate sort of these um, cool-looking pastors... Celebrity pastors, if you will, I think it's essential that we remind ourselves about somebody like the Apostle Paul. And if you're in here and you're bald today, be encouraged. (laughs) No doubt in my mind that Paul never intended to write the Bible. He was writing these, he had this burden, so as he went about planting these churches, and then the churches would start on their merrily way, and like most new churches do, they would get off course and drift to the right or drift to the left, and something weird would begin to happen, and then he'd have to pull out his pen, and he'd have to, you know, write them a letter or go visit them and correct them. I don't think when Paul penned these epistles, he was thinking, oh, this is going to be the new gospel. This is going to tie the Old Testament 
through the life of Jesus, and then my little epistles are going to finish it off. And that's how he would have thought of his epistles, my little insignificant epistles. And those letters, which most often would have been written hastily to churches in very terrible circumstances, which we'll talk about more as the weeks go on, are what became our gospel, our canon of Scripture. There's actually ten silent years in Paul's life after he was converted to Christ. And I imagine what's happening in those ten silent years, if you look at the book of Acts, is he's probably back to his home city of Tarsus, and he's probably making tents, and he's literally working out in this brilliant theological mind. How does the, the five books of Moses, the prophets, minor and major, the Psalms, the Proverbs, how do those fit with the life of Jesus? And then how is, is God literally exploding into the New Testament? And he spent 10 years literally working it out and studying after his conversion in sort of silence and probably some solitude as he worked on those tents and developed that hunch in his back. But what's fascinating to me is Paul takes all these journeys, these church planting journeys, and in the early days um, of Christianity, so we, we actually went through the life of um, Peter some weeks ago, you could go back and hear some of those. But you remember that 3,000 people at the day of Pentecost gave their hearts to Christ Jesus. And so in Jerusalem, we probably have a church that's, who knows, five, 6,000 strong. And at that point, there's so few Christians that um, Jews would really look at Christians and go, that's probably some kind of weird uh, Jewish sect. Okay, so what? There's always these weird things that pop up, right? You know it, I know it, they know it. But what began to happen with Paul is he begins to journey into the Gentile world from place to place, and he begins to plant these churches, and people are beginning to, to raise up in their faith, and these churches are actually starting to grow, and suddenly Gentiles are turning to Christ. And then suddenly Gentiles and Jews are living together, and what begins to happen is suddenly these pockets of Gentile believers and Gentile churches and places where Gentiles and Jews are living together are popping up, and they're becoming so big that suddenly the world can no longer simply ignore Suddenly, the Jews can't just go, this is some little weird Jewish sect. They actually begin to go, this is a Jesus movement. So Paul probably died 65 CE or AD, if you prefer, somewhere thereabouts. And by 300 AD, so some, you know, <clears throat> whatever that is, 240 years later, the Roman Empire is declared Christian. Just, just think on that for a minute. Jesus dies, we have Pentecost in Jerusalem, you know, there's 120 people hanging out, the Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 people give their life to Christ, and then suddenly Paul's on the scene, there's some silent years, and then he's traveling from place to place, city to city, and, and suddenly, within 250 years, you have the entire Roman Empire declared Christian. Who was this little man that commanded such energy and such passion? And how did he rally such a ragtag team of pioneers to so advance the gospel into the cities around the known world that the Roman Empire itself would say, we are Christian? That's fascinating to me. How did he advance it with such fervor? So the first thing I want to mention here is Paul's commission. And we really see that in Galatians 1.1. And you've got to understand something about this letter is when Paul is writing this letter, he's frustrated. He's frustrated with the church in Galatia. Because what's happened is there's four churches in Galatia that he would have planted. And what's happened is um, they have uh, started with grace 
And like many of us Christians do, they have slipped into a works-based religion and they start saying, oh, we got to obey all these rules and do all these things. And it's by these rules and it's by all these things that we do that we're saved. And Paul goes, whoa. The Jews at this point are even going, you got to basically, if you're a Gentile, you got to become a Jew to be saved. And, and Paul's going, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys are way off base. It is by grace and faith alone through Christ Jesus that we're saved. So he starts out, and this is his commission in that first verse. He says, Paul, an apostle, sent not by human commission. Don't you love that? He is so courageous. He just, boom. Paul, I'm an apostle, and I am not sent by a human. Nor by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He immediately jumps in and says, this is what it's about. Now, uh, something I think is at least interesting to think about is in these days, Paul would have written on a scroll like a roll of paper, right? And whoever was delivering that scroll would have to unfurl it a little bit and look at who it's going to and where it's heading. And so uh, this is literally what the, whoever the postmaster of the day was would have un- unrolled that scroll and he would have looked at that heading or they would have looked at that heading and they would have seen this and Paul literally, uh, it's like the outside of the envelope, if you will. Paul would have literally been preaching the gospel on the outside of his envelope. You follow me? Postmaster's taking that thing and he's got to un- unroll it. And literally it says already, not by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. He preaches the gospel on the outside of his envelope. Paul preached the gospel everywhere he went. If you and I knew him today, we'd probably call him high maintenance. Like for real. I, I guarantee you he was high maintenance because he commanded so much and the burden he carried was so significant. So he literally says, this is where I've come from, and he's referencing his conversion, which we're not going to go to, but if you want to look at it, read Acts 9, there's this conversion where God shows up and uh, literally says, Paul, who are you persecuting? I want to come back to that in a few minutes. The next thing we see as we go through this chapter 1 is in verse 3, he actually does a benediction at the beginning. That's very unusual. We're actually going to close our service today with this benediction. It's like a blessing. It's the way you end something. But he says it at the beginning because they've gotten off track, and he's correcting them. The other thing that's fascinating about the way he begins this is usually you would begin a letter, and you'd be highly complimentary. I love that the church in Galatia is doing so well with their greet team. I love that you guys in the parking lot are about... That was funnier than that. (laughs) Maybe it was. Okay. But usually you would start one of these letters with a compliment and he would start with something that says, hey, uh, you're doing this well. But Paul is so frustrated with this crew, he jumps right in, totally omits anything positive and jumps right in to a benediction. He is preaching the gospel to them twice in the opening two or three verses of this to set them straight because they have gotten off track. Now, If you knew him today, I just said it, but I think we'd call Paul high maintenance. I actually think we'd also probably call him oversensitive. He always, wearing his emotions sort of on his sleeve, always talking about the love of God and his burden for the churches. And I think we'd probably say if he's high maintenance, he is also high reward. And I was sitting there just the other day sort of reflecting about what might it be like if Paul was here in our midst. If this little man with a hunch in his back and a bow in his legs and gnarled hands were sitting in our midst, what might he be like? And I was thinking, I would imagine that Paul would come in and he would begin to say things like, 
Has anyone reached out to the church on the far side of the city because they're in crisis? Have we sent anybody to Dayton to go and minister to the families that were shot there? Has anyone got on a plane and gone down to Texas? There's a famine that's going on over in Africa. There's a church that's gotten off course in Hampstead. Has anyone gone over there? And then I imagine he'd actually look around and he'd go, Walter, get out a pen. We need to write a letter to the church in Charlotte because they've gotten off course. And then I imagine he'd look around at somebody else and go, Sam, get out a pen. Write, because we need to correct a church that's drifted over here. And everything I think this guy did would literally be to bring us in and everyone around him is suddenly brought in and on the team to advance the gospel of Christ Jesus. There was nothing else in this guy. If you cut him, he would have bled the gospel. I mean, he was through and through. He carried this burden with such weight. I want you to think about this. 2 Corinthians 11, 22 and following. I'm not going to read it, but this is what it says. Paul says, I've been imprisoned dozens of times. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us have been imprisoned for the gospel? How many of us have even been, probably a few of us, not this question, have been laughed at and mocked for the sake of the gospel? Maybe a few of us. Maybe. Paul says, I've endured countless beatings, often near death. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, God's people, his own people, 39 lashes. That would have been a cat of nine tails or a leather whip. His, his, if you pulled Paul's shirt off and looked at his back, he would have been striped with scars. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and drug out of the city and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. One time I was on the sea for almost 40 hours floating. On frequent journeys, I've encountered danger from crossing rivers, dangers because I've been robbed, danger because my own people turn against me. Some of you know that one. Danger because of the Gentiles, danger because there's people in the city that are after me, danger from the wilderness and wild animals, dangers from storms at the sea, danger from false brothers and sisters. He said, I've spent so many nights hungry. I've spent nights thirsty. I've gone without food and fasted out of necessity. I've been cold. And all this for the sake of the gospel. So my question is, what is going on inside this guy that prompts him to keep going? And I think that's important for us because you go, when you are going through a hard time, how do we get up? How do we stand up and keep going? There's even a passage in 2 Corinthians 1.8, you can look at it if you want, but Paul actually suggests that he despairs of life itself. Does that mean suicidal? Maybe. He despairs of life itself. And what is it? What is the Holy Spirit of God doing in this man? What is this commission that he has that causes him to get up and continue to advance the gospel in the cities that were around him. If you want to make note on something, I'd say make note on this. We as Christians ought to count trials, difficulties, persecutions, challenges, struggles as a sign of God's blessing and favor in our lives. Did that guy just say what I think he said? Yes, I did. We as Christians, the biblical model is to count difficulties, trials, struggles, persecutions, as blessings and a sign of the favor of God. 
Now, does that cut against the grain of our American Christianity? Yes. And is it high time that we evaluated? Are we actually, is, is the, the Christian journey that we're on actually muddled with the American dream and a few other things, or is it actually Christian? Because what Paul calls us to is a life where when difficulties come, we're able to go, oh man, this is the enemy coming against me and coming against how he wants to advance the gospel through my life. So if you're here today and you go, I am struggling, you're in a good spot. Can I say that? You're in a great spot. And it may be that the Lord is using and is molding and is calling you to walk through the turmoil that you're in so that his kingdom could be advanced. The second thing that I would want to point out is Paul pioneers these New Testament communities of uh, Gentiles and Jews. So I'm not going to go back and read it, but if you look at Galatians 1, 6 through 10 that Grant just read, it's like these uh, churches begin by the Spirit, so they begin by grace, and they end by human effort. And, and there's probably many churches around. In fact, I've preached a gospel at points where, where you end up mixing inadvertently human effort, and it can't be. And, and this gets really tricky and dicey because it's like, well, Michael, aren't we, aren't we um, supposed to be like activists and doing good works in our neighborhoods and in our cities? Yes. Yes. But it's not that activism. It's not those good works. It's not the positive things we do that make us right with God. That has to be an overflow. And, and there's those of us in the church, and there's churches around that actually get that mixed up, and you could inadvertently start actually working for your salvation. You'll never find that anywhere in Scripture. You never work for your salvation. We do work out our salvation. That's very different. And are we called to be activists? Are we called to engage our city? Are we called to bless our neighbors? Are we called to serve? Are we going down on the 25th to take meals with Ruth? Yes, but that is not what justifies us before God. That's an overflow of God's blessing and love in our life. I want to say something else here that's um, challenging, but I think it's worth saying. When you study the life of Jesus, and then you study the life of Paul, and Paul is pioneering these New Testament communities, you never find Jesus giving a harsh rebuke to someone who's had an abortion, to someone who's struggling with a sexual identity issue. You never find Jesus giving a harsh rebuke to someone who is struggling with alcoholism, someone who's committed adultery, someone who's in prostitution, someone who's a thief, someone who's greedy. You find Jesus giving harsh rebukes to who? The religious people. The people who are preaching a gospel that you must be saved by works. Clean up your life. Get it together. Then you can be saved. And Paul's going, his whole letter of Galatians is, no, 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 no. You guys have got it all mixed up and you've got to flip it. We are saved by grace alone through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the things that come out are, um, are good works that flow out of a heart that's been redeemed. We don't do good works to earn the favor and grace of God. Now, Jesus always called, as did Paul, people struggling with the type of things I just mentioned, to repent. He even called them to go and sin no more. But we must be very careful that we as a church don't slip into the judgmentalism and self-righteousness of the Pharisees. 
in 20, uh, there's a group called the Barna Group, and they just released a study. And I pulled these two little things out of it because I thought it was interesting. 35% of, uh, of America sees Christians as hypocritical. That breaks my heart. But when you preach a gospel that's based on works and not on grace, we're all hypocritical. You see me? The second thing that 41% of, of, of America sees Christians as judgmental, so not grace-based. And we have these, um, these two extremes that churches sort of fall into. We have grace movements where it seems like it gets such radical grace that we almost abandon truth. And we have truth movements that get so into, like, this is what's right and this is how we do it, that they almost abandon grace. And just like we are seeking to be a word and spirit church, we're seeking to be a grace and truth church. Because grace is not fully operative without truth. And the word is not fully operative without the spirit. <clears throat> so we have Paul. He's pioneering these New Testament communities. And what you basically have is a group of Jewish Christians who've snuck in the back door at Galatia and these four churches. And they're basically saying, hey, you've got to do all these external things in order to become um, believers, in order to become Christians. And, and Paul actually says, and it's actually worth looking at right here, because he says, um, verse 8, the end of verse 8, let that person be under God's curse. I, I want to just park here and dig here for just a second. Um, when you go back to the original Greek and what Paul's saying, I actually feel like Bible translators have struggled with this for a long time because we don't want to say what's being said here. But Paul's actually saying, um, and you're going to have to forgive me for this word, but it's, it's what Paul's saying, let that person be damned. He's literally saying, let that person be sent to eternal separation from God into hell. That's what Paul is saying there. And you read that and you go, surely, 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 that seems a little severe. But again, remember our Jesus and how severe he was with the religious people. Then you got Paul being that same level of severity against people who make the Christian walk more about their external performance than the state of their hearts before him. And Paul is so severe on this thing, he is going, if, if those so-called Christians are going to lead believers astray, let them be sent to hell. That's what he's saying. That's so serious to me. That's so serious. Just a touch of background there, but when you turn on a movie and you hear somebody go, GD, you know what I'm saying there? What, what they're literally saying is, God be sent to hell. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't take his name in vain. When you curse somebody, when you hear somebody say, use that same word, blank you, you're literally, that's what you're saying. That's where this has its root. And Paul is so severe that Christians don't pervert the gospel and make it about works that he's literally going, listen, if someone is leading you astray, may they be sent to hell. I am dumbfounded again and again as I read this scripture about how serious Jesus took, and then how serious the Apostle Paul took, people who preach a, a, um, a repentance of works. In other words, you just have to clean up the outside of the cup, and it doesn't matter what's on the inside. And what you consistently see as you dig in here is that Jesus is interested in the heart, interested in repentance of the heart, and then what flows out should be an overflow, not that we cleaned up the outside. Okay, let's keep going. 
Uh, the next thing I want to point out is Paul's training and his zeal. That's just coming out of Galatians 1, 11 through 17. And I also want to um, tie in Numbers 25. This is really complex, but I want to hit it quickly. Um, remember Paul, before he was Paul, was named Saul, right? And you remember how he stood by and he actually held the cloaks for the people that killed? Who remembers? Stephen, that's right. So he was literally going around with letters from the Sanhedrin um, before he was a believer in, in Jesus, and he was doing what he thought was good, which was persecuting and killing Christians. He literally stood by as they killed Stephen. And I began to sort of look into that and go, how did God take this guy who thought it was good to do that, and where did that come from? How, how did he even think it was good to go out and kill a Christian? And I dug back into Numbers 25, and without going too far in it, you can read it on your own time if you want, but there was this big outbreak of immorality and idolatry in Numbers 25, and this guy named Phineas steps in. So God is literally breaking out on his people with a plague, and people are dying, um, and there's this act, um, and uh, Phineas comes in with a spear and, and literally spears someone who's in the act of sexual immorality right in front of Moses. This literally happens. It's kind of gruesome. It's like, what? So a man literally comes in with a woman. They're in the act of immorality right in front of Moses. And this guy comes in and spears these two people, kills them. And Paul studied under this guy named Gamaliel. And Paul, from the time he was a young boy, would have been taught that when you do that, you are intervening and you are invoking the blessing of God. Because in that Numbers 25 passage, this plague that was breaking out upon the people, when he speared them, the plague stopped. And it says this guy, Phineas, was blessed by God. So Paul, in his mind, in his pre-Christian mind, is literally, as he's stoning Stephen, and this is so important, like get this, because as he's stoning Stephen, who is a believer, a hero of our New Testament Bible, right? And he's there stoning Stephen, and he thinks, he is convinced that he's doing it right. He is convinced that he's obeying God and that he's doing well. You following me? And so Jesus actually appears to him on this road to Damascus and goes, Saul, who are you persecuting? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul answers, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul was so deceived and up was down. He was so mixed up in his thinking that Jesus himself had to come to Paul and say, Paul, stop it. And he caused him to go blind for three days. That's a separate story. But one of the things I love about Paul is he was so diligent is after he gave his life to Christ, he went to Arabia where that act with Phineas would have happened. He went to Arabia to Mount Sinai and he studied the Ten Commandments. He studied the Mosaic Law. And his, this, this deep theological mind begins to connect um, the Old Testament and the New Testament and these New Testament communities he's planting. And that is the training. He was trained under one of the finest Jewish guys in the law, the Sanhedrin, called Gamaliel. And then the other thing that I think is imperative here is that after a season of time, Paul actually goes to Jerusalem and he goes to the, uh, the head of the church in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, and he goes to them and he says, this is the gospel I'm preaching. Does it align with the gospel that you got from Christ Jesus himself? And they say, yes. And then he says, I believe I'm called to the Gentiles. 
And in chapter 2 right here, they say, we agree, go. So he comes with this, um, with this ultimate surrender and goes, listen, this is the gospel that I'm preaching. Is it in accordance with what you heard from Christ Jesus himself because you walked with him? And they go, yes, number one. And number two, go to the Gentiles. They affirm his call. And the last thing that I want to point out is Paul goes from this dramatic transition from persecutor to preacher. Paul undergoes this massive change in his life, this little man who is zealous to the point of killing Christians when he is intercepted by the power of the gospel of Christ Jesus. There's this dramatic change inside of him and he spends some 8 to 13 years, depending on how you read it, sorting out his theology. And then there's this endless fuel and fire to go and build these little churches, these little New Testament communities all around the known world. And he gives every last ounce of his strength from city to city to city. So Susie, would you come back up for us? And as she's coming, I've got two thoughts for you. Number one, what are you doing? What am I doing about this Jesus today in your life? Because we're looking at a guy who gave everything because he was so convinced about who Jesus was. And then secondly, I think the question becomes, are you here today living out of grace and delight? Or are you living out of duty and performance? And if you're like me, you've lived out of both at times. But the invitation here from Paul to Galatians and simultaneously the invitation to us is don't lose your first love. This isn't about your performance or what you do or what you say or what you don't do. It's about a heart that's surrendered to Christ Jesus. And Christ literally goes, come to me with your sin, with your ugliness, with your brokenness, and then I will rise up and flow out of you with good works. Let's close our eyes and pray a second. Father, I imagine there was quite a party when you called Paul heavenward. And Father, more than anything, my heart and the elder's heart, our heart for Saltbox would be that we would be a group that lives out of delight that we would be a group that sheds duty, that sheds performance, that we would live out of the delight and the relationship of Christ Jesus. And whatever that fervor was that was so deep within Paul, or would you let us here at Saltbox carry it? Father, would you move on our hearts and minds today in this little cafeteria? 
Father, even as we study the life of Paul and the life of these courageous pioneers that journeyed with him, Lord, I'm reminded what happens when one or two men and women surrender their hearts fully to you and what you can do and use them to accomplish. Lord, I pray you do that here at Saltbox.